Hello and welcome to the Booking Club Live. I'm the host and producer of the Booking Club podcast, Jack Aldane, and I'm delighted to be joined here by social and computational scientist at uh, Duke University in Texas, United States, Professor Chris Bale, author of Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. Chris, absolute pleasure to have you talking to me today. Thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about like what's going on for you right now. You're uh, you're based in Duke, Texas. It's about 9 a.m. in the morning. Um, how have the last 12 months played out for you? It's been crazy for everybody. But from your perspective, uh, tell us a little bit about the sort of year you've had. Yeah, Duke, Duke, the university where I teach is actually in North Carolina, not Texas. But North Carolina is a bit of an interesting state politically uh, because we're about equal amounts uh, Democrats and Republicans. So, you know, I've had it's kind of, if you like, a, uh, you know, a great experiment on what happens when, you know, people take very different political strategies to address things like COVID. Well, I'll, I said that I was going to talk a little bit about another very brilliant book on the uh, problem of polarization in modern America, that being The Upswing, if you remember, uh, a book recently published uh, by the eminent sociologist Robert Putnam and uh, Shailen Romney Garrett. And uh, I thought this would be a good launching pad for this conversation. I mean, those two authors in this book, which I highly recommend to all the listeners and, and uh, viewers out there, gives a very rich historical and statistical analysis of polarization in modern America. And the authors seem to track this sort of story of this problem as kind of starting to rear its head around the end of the countercultural revolution of the 60s with events like the Vietnam War, Watergate and the racial and economic turmoil of the period, after which you get this desperate attempt by two presidents, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, to hold the center ground. But that eventually falls away and takes bipartisan politics with it. You get a, a dip in things like split ticket voting, for example. And then we move into the sort of 80s era after the mid-70s with Reaganomics and sort of Reagan's campaign of no pale pastels, just bold colors. And this is where the era of big government and tax and spend being the boogeyman starts to come into the uh, into the picture and kind of attracts the Democratic Party over time um, as well. Um, but in the end, you know, the Republican Party has always been more right of center on these issues. And it's only when we get to the Obama and Trump uh, years that polarization approaches uh, what Putnam describes as an almost, quote, mathematical perfection, whereby 95% of support for the administration comes from within the party itself, only 3% of support comes from the opposition. So suffice it to say that polarization has a long shadow throughout uh, the United States. Um, it's got a history to it. It is not a new phenomenon. Uh, it has affected successive generations. And I think even a recent Harvard study shows that uh, Democrats and Republicans live in parts of the US where they will virtually never cross paths with voters from their respective political opponents. Now, in North Carolina, you say that's somewhat an outlier to that uh, to that trend. But um, can we start by by me asking, what portion of the blame do you think do big tech firms, Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms own for polarization? Again, given that this is not a new phenomenon. Yeah, this is the question everybody wants the answer to, but unfortunately, it's one of the hardest to answer. You know, in social science, you know, the gold standard is some kind of experiment where you, you know, randomly assign people to use social media or not, and then see how their political attitudes change. And we have a few studies that come close to that, but really nothing that would make me comfortable saying, you know, there is a negative or a positive effect of social media. As you mentioned, 
there were so many pre-existing factors. You mentioned a lot of the political factors, but there were a suite of media factors as well. For example, the emergence of cable news or 24-hour news. You know, historically, people had you know two or three choices in the United States about where to get their news, and those two to three stations had to cater to both Republicans and Democrats. If they took two extreme positions, they would lose their audience. That changed in the 1980s and the 1990s as we saw the proliferation of smaller um, media corporations that actually had an incentive to try to cater to those niche audiences that were more polarized. And now, of course, those smaller networks have come to kind of recast what it means to be mainstream news, and we're seeing much more partisan positions. So even before social media came along, as you say, we were a pretty polarized country. And um, teasing out what social media does is, is, I think, maybe the wrong question. I think the right question is, given that we're in a very polarized situation, not only in the US, but in, in the UK as well, if I may, um, you know, how are we going to make it better? Uh, I think that's the better place to start, because I don't think we'll ever really know the net effect of social media on top of all these other factors. So now Twitter with its uh, 192 million users and Facebook with its 2.7 billion users worldwide, what exactly is the proportion of Americans who get most of their news from social media currently, Chris? Well, it varies a lot by age. Um, If we look at the entire population, I believe it's somewhere in the range of one and three. But if we zero in down to especially younger cohorts of people less than, say, 30, then the numbers are quite high, as high as three quarters of people. And I expect those numbers will continue to rise um, given the rates of usage of social media, particularly among the youngest generations, people aged 15 to 25, for example, seem to not only be using social media more than any other generation, but using it to read about politics more than any other generation too. I guess the three main problems I see with social media as it stands is that, well, first of all, it seems patently obvious that it's addictive. It monopolizes our attention, our ability to think critically, and our self-esteem as well. As a result, it's making us angrier, more afraid, and more isolated and estranged from one one another. And finally, its social media um, has become a, a battleground more for identities than a testing ground for ideas, which was kind of what it was always meant to be, right? The, the big tech firms always said they were bringing the world together uh, through these platforms. Some would, and as you well know, some do, argue that these things alone ought to push us to just log off altogether. Why shouldn't we do just that? Yeah, well, I mean, let's start with this question of what social media was supposed to do. And then we can come back to this question of how how we can make it better. I think first we have to diagnose the problem a little bit. And for me, yeah, you know, the vision, if we went back to the early 90s or even back to the 80s when the Internet was first coming online, I think the dream of many pioneers was that the Internet would create a much more open society where people could encounter a much more diverse range of views And, you know, by virtue of being able to enter a conversation with virtually anybody at any point in time, this would, you know, heighten democracy. It would allow us to realize that there's, you know, a multitude of views out there and we might not get stuck in the same type of views that, you know, surround us in our family or friends or our kind of normal offline networks. So obviously that didn't happen. Um, by the way, though, that, that idea that social media should create a better competition of ideas, I think still motivates a lot of tech leaders, especially people like Mark Zuckerberg or, or maybe Jack Dorsey as well, you know, to the extent that they continue to assume that things like uh, misinformation or fake news 
uh, can be crowdsourced, right? The people can come together and make group decisions about what is and is not true. It's pretty clear at this point that social media is not a competition of ideas. It's not creating that kind of competition of ideas. It's creating a competition of our identities. Um, the reason we use social media and the reason we're addicted to social media, I think, is not that you know it simply provides flashy eye candy that we, we can't stop looking at it. We're addicted to it, I think, because it allows us to do something that's all too human, which is to figure out how we fit into the world, to seek status. Um, you know, each day we wake up and knowingly or unknowingly, we're kind of trying out different identities. This is what makes us distinct from, uh, from other creatures, right? Um, and then we look in our social environment for cues about what's working. You know, what are people reacting to? What types of identities that I project do other people respond to and react positively to? And then we tend to cultivate those types of identities over time. And so the really interesting question I think is, how is social media reshaping that human instinct? Uh, and I think it does so in basically two ways. The first is it gives us unprecedented flexibility to experiment with different kinds of identities. You know, we can be fully anonymous or describe every detail of our lives, for example. Um, and secondly, it gives us new tools for monitoring what other people are thinking of us. So if we're, you know, part of our addiction, for me, even the main part of the addiction to social media is, you know, people obsessively wanting to know what other people think about who they are, what their identity is. So if we think of the addiction as stemming from this kind of core human impulse, I think it makes a lot harder to makes it a lot harder to think about simply leaving social media. Um, not only because these instincts, I think, are deeply embedded in human nature, but also because, as you mentioned, uh, increasingly political conversations um, are rarer in offline settings and increasingly younger people are flocking towards social media and using social media for, for to learn about politics. So if these conversations don't happen on social media, I'm not frankly sure where they'll happen. The lab that you and your team have worked uh, in to to pull out a lot of this uh, interesting data and research, a lot of which goes into the book, is the Polarization Lab. I encourage everyone who's listening and watching to uh, to, to log on there at uh, www.polarization, that's with a Z, uh, lab, all one word, dot com. Um, Chris, could you tell us a little bit about the lab? How long has it been active? What's its essential objective? And what can people find at this website to discover more about the work you've been doing? Sure. Um, we have two goals as a lab. The first is to do top-notch research, um, but the second is to develop tools that, research-based tools that people can use to try to counter political polarization themselves, or at least understand it better. Um, so we're a group of social scientists, computer scientists, data scientists, statisticians, and we tend to run large experiments on social media sites like Twitter, and from those, we can study things like social media echo chambers or foreign misinformation campaigns and try to derive large scale insights about kind of what's driving things. And, and in my book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, I describe a lot of these large scale experiments that we've run over the last few years. But we also, as I said, we want to actually, um, you know, move beyond the university and academia and try to give people the power, empower people to both understand the research and use the research, um, but also to create tools, what you might call middleware, things that you can plug into, say, your Twitter account, things like bots or apps or other things like that that you can find on polarizationlab.com that allow you to really try to implement some of the insights of the research. 
So let's talk about the tools in a bit. What I'd like to talk about are the experiments that you describe in the book. Uh, in particular, one very significant moment for you and your team, which was the discovery that when you successfully break a user's echo chamber, it doesn't just fail to make them less trenchant in their political views, it actually makes them more so. Uh, in other words, they double down. Uh, I was surprised by this because, like a lot of people, I always thought that echo chambers were the root of the problem, that if we could break our own echo chambers, uh, then we would come to a place of moderation. So how did you arrive at that particular finding? And, and what, is it, what is its significance for the bigger goal of trying to make our platforms less polarizing? Yeah, I think most people have that view. I certainly had that view four or five years ago when I first started doing some of this research. You know, the idea that social media has allowed us to segregate ourselves from each other um, thereby creating a kind of myopia where we can only kind of see one side of the story really nicely explains these kind of, you know, surprising political outcomes we've seen in the U.S. So in the U.K., uh, maybe it's Brexit, but in the U.S., you know, maybe it was for liberal people anyways, the election of Donald Trump, right? Uh, the idea that we were segregated from each other helps us understand, many people think, why we weren't able to see these things coming. So it follows that, you know, again, like you say, if you took someone outside their echo chamber, they should probably be better able to see two sides to every story. So in 2017, we recruited about 1,200 Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. who used Twitter, and we asked them to complete a survey about their views. But then a week later, we invited about half of them to follow a bot that they were told would retweet messages, um, 24 messages a day. Uh, for one month. And what they didn't know is that that bot was going to begin retweeting messages from people with opposing political views, uh, journalists, politicians, activists, and so on. And of course, we hoped that this intervention would make people more moderate, that they would, you know, if they were very liberal, that they would maybe become a little less liberal, or they were, if they were very conservative, maybe they become a little, a little less conservative. And instead, as you said, what we saw is exactly the opposite. So liberals, when they followed the Republican bot, they tended to become a little bit more liberal. Um, conservatives, when they followed the, the Democratic bot, um, they became much more conservative. And so again, for me, this underscores that, you know, social media really isn't a competition of ideas, right? If it were a competition of ideas, I think we would have seen that moderating effect. Instead, we have to think about, you know, what are we exposing people to when we step outside our echo chamber? Social media isn't just an objective account of what the entire uh, world thinks. Instead, what I think is the most important problem and the one that not enough people understand is that the gap between social media and reality is the real problem. When we step outside our echo chamber, we usually don't encounter moderate views. We encounter the preponderance of people on social media who have very extreme views. And so thinking about um, the distortion that happens, um, when we see interact with other people and discuss politics on social media, you know, we're usually not interacting with, you know, the moderate majority. We're usually interacting with a small group of users who have an outsized influence, and those people have very extreme views. Yeah, and it's those people who you interview who uh, I found fascinating, including the moderates who we'll get onto in a moment. As for the uh, extreme online users, I think the important thing to say here is that unlike the kinds of images that come to mind when we think of antisocial keyboard warriors, a lot of extreme online users are very much ordinary people. Um, but they all had, it seems, something in common. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems that they were all trying to fill the void in, in, in life for where influence and status uh, 
should be, or at least where they felt that they were valued in and of themselves. So that lack of a sense of social status actually drove them to extreme positions. Now, mm-hmm. I understand that a lot of your research, research shows that somebody can go from being moderate to extreme quite quickly through other means as well. But could we talk a little bit about the, uh, the people you interviewed in the book that were extreme uh, online users with tendencies to post very uh, kind of, you know, graphic, very insulting, very insensitive content. And the sorts of people they were in life versus their online uh, avatars and, and what you found out about them as people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a story of one particular person who really stands out and I describe in the book. Um, and that is a guy that I call Ray to protect his his confidentiality. And, you know, Ray, when we first met him, is a very polite, even deferential person who goes out of his way to, say, decry incivility, especially on social media. He says things like, oh, you know, all these people arguing about politics on social media, you know, they're probably just losers who who live with their parents. And, you know, he says, I try to avoid those people. Goes out of his way to explain that he's not racist and this, that, and the other. So then when we go to look at Ray online, which we obtained um, permission to do from a survey firm that helped us find him and and interview him, uh, what we discovered is Ray actually undergoes a kind of Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde style transformation every night. Every night he creates about 10 different memes, uh, you know, depicting Democrats and other liberal leaders, uh, liberal in the American sense of the word here, you know, in the most obscene way. Um, And so, you know, this question arises, how does this person kind of sustain these two different personalities? And the answer I think is that, you know, social media uh, really is providing a badly needed sense of status for this guy, Ray, who we later learned by looking at data from the survey firm is actually um, uh, kind of a social outcast. He lives in a very liberal city, but he has conservative views. And he works in a very liberal profession, again, liberal and meaning of kind of Democrat in the US here. Um, uh, so he has very, uh, you know, v- very few uh, friends, really. I mean, he's, you know, he's kind of isolated because of his views and he tends to hide his views for those reasons. Um, but, you know, he's a middle-aged guy who actually lives with his mom, just like the people who uh, he was criticizing. And so, you know, we think that watching him online each night you know, he really was incentivized to take these increasingly extreme positions because he was deriving from this behavior a really powerful sense of belonging, inclusion, and most importantly, status. He was getting lots of new followers and he's getting excited by the likes of this increasingly extreme content and learned quite quickly, as I think many people do, that the more extreme content uh, he posted, the more likes and new followers that he got. Extremists, you write in the book, don't like to be analyzed and scrutinized particularly. Um, can I ask, what did you think of Ray, given that you had some time to get to know him as a, as a person and then you observed him online as well? Um, what was your instinctive feeling towards him? You know, I actually feel sorry for him. And, and you know, it's not just Ray, but the dozens of other people that we interviewed, you know, some of these people, you know, are, are in really tough situations. You know, one particular individual was living in a motel, a small hotel, um, you know, recently uh, lost his wife, bankrupt, you know, I mean, just really down and out. And I think that, you know, the way politics works in, in the US today is like, you know, as soon as you take a position, you are judged pretty harshly. And this isn't just on the conservative or Republican side, this is on the liberal side as well. You know, one of the other 
kind of extreme figures that I profile in the book is a guy who um, is a Democrat who lives in a very Republican part of the U.S. And, you know, he tells us, you know, none of his friends from from school will talk to him anymore. He can't get a date. You know, he's deeply depressed. And, you know, the the Internet and, and social media in particular, I think, provides a kind of refuge for people who are social outcasts in their real lives. So, you know, I think obviously this is indicative of broader problems in, in the U.S. and maybe even the world, like rising inequality or, you know, maybe it's an empathy gap and, you know, the other kind of broad scale factors that have that have pulled us apart to the point where we're so rarely interacting with each other across political lines. You you, you spoke just then about sort of the effect that it's having on, on people's ability to really empathize with others. And um, it just made me, it reminded me of uh, Westworld. I don't know if you ever watched that mm-hmm. series on television, but it seemed that even though that story was presented to us as a sort of a dystopian, far future sci-fi scenario, in many ways you could say that this is just reflecting back to us what we are capable of doing and how we're capable of perceiving other people. If we sense mm-hmm. that they're not quite there, they're not quite real, and that mm-hmm. we can actually kind of, you know, exact all sorts of violent imagery and words on them uh, because they're simply just not there. Um, mm-hmm. And it's probably something I'd like to touch on later on. I mean, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville's on his uh, Democracy in America talks about the art of association and the importance of actually having places where people meet and actually recognize each other as three-dimensional thinking sentient beings. Social media has completely blown all of this apart, and it was in some ways the foundation for public and political life in America. And one wonders, could it ever make a comeback? I know you're trying to fix the problem by applying better tech to the technology that exists, but I can't help but think, you know, what we really need are more town halls, more public squares, places that are there for people to meet and accept that they live with other people who may differ wildly in in circumstance and uh, an outlook. But anyway, moving on, the moderates that you speak to are in some ways even more fascinating, aren't they? Because a bit like most of us, they see all this online extremism going on and they have, unlike the extremists, quite a lot to lose from getting involved, whether it's friendships, you know, good family relations, jobs even. And so as a result, moderates, um, people with, you know, uncertainties about political issues tend to step away and they just vanish into the into the background, and we don't get to hear from them. So they leave this huge gulf in the conversation. I wonder, do you think moderates are, generally speaking, wasting their time on social media at the moment? Is there something they can do to fight back, conversely, against the problem without making it worse? Yeah, well, first, let's think about, you know, the landscape of social media. We know that on Twitter, for example, about 73% of tweets about politics in the United States are created by about 6% of people, uh, 6% of Twitter users. And those yeah. 6% of people have very extreme views. So mm-hmm. if you go online, it's very easy to feel like everyone's so extreme. And yeah, you're not seeing these moderates. And, and as you say, the question is, why aren't we seeing the moderates? And I think there's a lot of reasons. You mentioned, you know, tensions with friends and family. There's also just harassment. So, you know, one of the stories that sticks in my mind is a young conservative woman who we interviewed, you know, who just, you know, we asked everyone we interviewed, we asked some version of this question, oh, tell us about the last time you used social media. And she says, well, you know, you know, recently I was up late and I had just put my two kids to sleep and I was, you know, um, on Twitter and someone posted about the National Rifle Association, the group that promotes gun rights ownership in the United States. 
And, you know, she says, uh, you know, I just replied with something pretty innocuous, like, you know, I, I support, um, you know, people's rights to own a gun. My husband owns a gun. He goes to a shooting range. He's a responsible gun owner, something like that. And of course, in the U.S. is a very divisive issue, as you, as, as you, as you probably know. And so within, within minutes, she says she was getting replies to her tweet from people who were saying things like, I hope your kids find your gun and shoot you. Um, you know, and unfortunately, this type of experience is the modal experience on Twitter. So a recent survey of Americans suggests that uh, the most common pe reason people are harassed online is for expressing their political views. So for someone like this woman that I'm describing, um, you know, she just deleted her Twitter account. Um, she's, you know, she became in effect completely invisible. Um, and, you know, the, there's, there's a million other stories, right? This, right? It doesn't even need to be someone on the other side. It could be someone on your own side punishing you for taking a moderate position. So the problem is like the incentive structures of social media are all misaligned. Right now, you get rewarded for producing extreme content because that extreme content is more engaging to people from your side. And then it gets boosted or liked or followed and rises up your, your timeline or your newsfeed. And these moderate posts tend to get little or no uh, attention, probably because most of the active users on social media are very extreme. And so then you get this effect where moderates are, you know, not only are they getting punished when they post political content, but maybe when they post something and see that it doesn't get much traction, you know, posting about their moderate views and indeed gets, you know, uh, results in these negative things, then like, yeah, social media just isn't worth it to them. Um, and they tend to seem all but invisible on social media, making the power of the extremists to dominate the conversation even more palpable. I mean, of all the social media platforms out there, I tend to use Twitter most, and I've come to see it as a bit like a dive bar that mainly <laughs> it mainly attracts raging alcoholics and, uh, and, and, you know, makes most of its money by feeding people's addictions anyway. Um, but then rather than throwing out those that start throwing bar stools before midnight and, uh, and, and throwing fists, uh, it actually just rewards them with free drinks. You know, you know, it's a, it's a very unhealthy environment as it is, but as you say, it, 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 repels people who are there to have something like a good time and, and have constructive debate. And again, I know this is something you're working on. And so we'll get to the tools and recommendations that you make towards the end of the book as to how to fix that in a bit. Um, but I thought it was important for us to get onto the subject of false polarization before we do that, because this is a very, a very important concept that I don't think a lot of people will necessarily know about. If I may just explain briefly the, uh, the tendency of users uh, to overestimate differences between themselves and people with opposed political views, but also, and importantly, the tendency of people to underestimate the differences between themselves and people within their own parties or their own demographics. Now, I guess it kind of makes false polarization a bit of a blessing and a curse, right? Maybe we're not as different from other people as we think, but of course, online, appearances are all we have to go on. So it's very difficult to puzzle that out. I'll leave it to you to say how understanding false, false polarization can help us better navigate our way through the problem of polarization in general. Sure. You know, we know false polarization existed even before social media. So, you know, as long ago as the 1990s in the United States, people were studying whether, you know, what people think the other side thinks and what the other side actually thinks. And as you say, we tend to think the other side is more extreme than they really are. And we tend to minimize the ideological extremity on our own side or normalize it. So in the aggregate, that can make us all feel a lot more polarized. It can make seem 
make it seem like people on the other side just are unreasonable. Um, so the, the question is, where do we get this gap between perception and reality? And historically speaking, you know, earlier I was talking about the media and the media's role in kind of taking increasingly partisan positions. So media is definitely to blame. And we have older studies that show that media contributes to this false polarization gap. But a recent study of, of many different countries concluded that social media is, is kind of setting this process into hyperdrive. So, you know, because this small minority of users tends to dominate the conversation, that's pulling the gap between perception and reality even further. And people are coming to think that the other side is just wholly unreasonable um, because we're only seeing the most extreme side of, of, of the continuum there. You know, interestingly, this effect transcends, you know, a lot of the research, unfortunately, just focuses on the US, but there's new studies that look at false polarization in, you know, dozens of countries. And they find that this gap persists all over the place, you know, everywhere from, um, you know, Somalia to, uh, to the US, to the UK, to many other countries. The good news, if we're looking for silver lining, is that correcting the gap between perception and reality seems to really, really depolarize people across all of these different places. So the really interesting question that I think we all need to focus on is how do we, you know, make social media contribute to false polarization less? And how can we kind of close the gap between social media and reality? Because I just don't think we're going to leave social media anytime soon. Do you think you've answered that question in this book? I'm going to ask you to tell us more about the recommendations you make in a moment. Well, I think, you know, this gap is huge right now, right? I mean, 6% of the people uh, accounting for 73% of the posts about politics is a monumental challenge. So I don't think any single book or even any single intervention is going to pull mm -hmm. this gap all the way back. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the very first step is awareness, right? I mean, the, the single most dangerous thing is when people confuse social media with reality, right? Then mm. the, other, the other side seems unreasonable, um, you know, uh, petulant, um, uncivil, right? All the things that these extremists who are dominating the platforms are. And then even when maybe these rare opportunities that you were describing that Alexei de Tocqueville might have liked us to take in these kind of, you know, small settings where we might, you know, get together and associate with each other in offline settings, once, you know, we get these prejudices and stereotypes from social media, it makes those opportunities even more difficult to, you know, um, convert into depolarizing opportunities, right? Because people just come into the interactions with so many prejudices and stereotypes derived from social media. So it's a huge, huge problem. And I think, you know, um, the first step is awareness, educating people that, you know, the other side may not be as extreme as they look. And, and that's really where a lot of the solutions that I prescribe in the book start. Going back quickly to Alexei de Tocqueville, do you think that there's some truth to this idea that we need a hybrid of better technology, but also more public spaces in which people can meet and debate and discuss issues of the day? Would you say that, that ultimately we do need to bring back political debate in a physical format? Look, I would love if we could bring political debate back in a physical format. In fact, there's studies that indicate even a brief 10-minute conversation between a Republican and Democrat in a real-world in-person setting can really, really depolarize people to the tune of 10 points on a 100-point scale, which is a really large effect. Mm -hmm. um, so offline interaction would be great. The question is, is it realistic? You know, you already mentioned the study from Harvard by the political scientist Ryan Enos 
that used mm. motor file data, very high resolution data that allows us to estimate exactly where people live to show that most Republicans and Democrats simply are never going to have the opportunity or very rarely going to have the opportunity to interact with each other. So, you know, what does that public square look like? You know, um, is it a library? Is it a, you know, a, I, I don't know what it looks like. I, I wish we could, you know, quickly diagnose this problem and, and, and develop these centers. But my sense is we're headed in the opposite direction. We're headed to further distance from each other. I mean, COVID has laid this bare right with the you know social distancing. But even before COVID, we were starting to be more separate from each other. So much as I would like to prescribe mm -hmm. both, you know, technological and in-person solutions, and I still think we should try with in-person solutions, I just think we're going to move the needle most by making social media a little less polar polarizing. To talk a little bit about the Instagram two-year study recently that you tweeted about, about the preference for the like button, that heart-shaped like button, a function which is uh, social, social psychologist uh, Jonathan Haidt and Gregory Gainoff in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, talk about as being an incredibly uh, strong force on, on people's self-worth, particularly that of young people, particularly that of young women, actually. Um, I was going to ask, can you remind us what that Instagram study found exactly and whether or not you've been able to figure out whether Instagram is willing to share any of the data on, on the findings of that study? Yeah, this is a really frustrating uh, development. You know, for three years, Instagram has been somewhat randomly turning on and off the like counter for people in different countries um, at different points in time. And, and presumably they were doing this to try to see whether people engage in less polarizing or uncivil behavior, things like harassment or, you know, um, other kinds of, um, you know, attacks. And uh, the answer to what they found is we don't know. All that we've been told from a press release from Instagram was that some people seem to benefit from it and some people didn't, um, which is pretty vague. Um, we don't know how many, right? We don't even know how many people visited or which types of people or where. Um, mm -hmm. And then we were just told in this kind of what's become a platitude of social media platforms, I think that, you know, we're going to give the decision to the user to say, you know, whether you want to take away your like button or not. Right. And the problem for me is like, you know, there's a few, there's a, there's a million, million problems here. The first one is that we just, we'd like to see the data, you know, we'd like to know what, what you found. Um, the second is, you know, it's probably quite right that, that doing this has different effects on different types of people. Um, so the really interesting question to my mind is, are the people who are most upset about losing the like like button, which is nominally why uh, Facebook and Instagram decide to keep it, um, are they the ones most likely to benefit from dropping it? Right, the people who are maybe most obsessed with it might be experiencing positive effects that they don't they aren't able to realize as positive. But even worse, you know, if you're leaving it up to users, well, users don't know if they're the type of person who's going to benefit from turning it off. So why are you, you know, uh, you know, what, what's the point here? Um, so you know, there's a lot of limitations. We really need um, corporations, uh, you know, to be much better about sharing their data. I think Facebook's a particularly bad example. Twitter, on the other hand, um, shares quite a bit of data with, with us research researchers and has been going in the other direction for a long time, opening up more and more data, even opening up its campaign Birdwatch to try to crowdsource uh, misinformation detection, which I think is a very positive step. So, but Facebook, as the world, you know, leader in, in social media, I think really needs to find a way to do a better job, at least disclosing the findings of its own research, um, let alone giving researchers like me access to their data.
fingers crossed for that. Towards the end of the book, then you you put forward a series of recommendations for how social media engagement can in fact deliver with, on, on what existing platforms um, have said from the beginning, as we said earlier, uh, is their mission of bringing people together. That line stood out to me, and it's why I'm repeating it now, because you use it in a sense to contrast the current reward system based on takedowns of one side or the other, those sort of either obscene or snipey memes that people like to produce in, in, uh, in great volume, with an alternative reward system that rewards users who prove themselves to be, and I'm quoting from the book here, effective bipartisan communicators. Now, Obviously, this speaks to a certain number of people's interests and aptitudes. It certainly speaks to mine. I would like to think that I could uh, gain a reputation for being something like that on social media, as opposed to somebody who stakes their claims on, on one ideology or another. So how does this work in practice? How might, how might this new platform be structured to, to, uh, to change the incentives for engagement? Sure. So I think, you know, there's there's kind of two things we can do. The first is things we can do on the current platforms, such as they are. And then there's this question of what would a better platform look like? And, you know, I'd love to start with the question of what we can do with the current platforms, because I don't think any new platform is going to come around tomorrow and we need answers right now. So, you know, the first thing we can do, I think, is to try to turn down the volume of extremism and boost the volume of moderates. And I think there's a few different ways we can do that. The first is for everyone to become more aware of false polarization, as I mentioned. Um, but to do that, you really need some help. You know, who's an extremist? Who's a moderate? How do you even know? And so on polarizationlab.com, we've created tools that allow you to, for example, input characteristics of a user um, and, and like look at the language that they're using and try to get a prediction of whether that person has extreme views and might not be worth arguing with or, or might be kind of misrepresenting the other side for you. So at first is kind of become aware of how to spot trolls and extremists and avoid them. You know, the classic, you know, adage, you know, don't feed the trolls is, is, is really important here. The second is get moderates, you know, more visible. And, you know, there's a few ways we can do this. We maintain something called a bipartisanship leaderboard on polarizationlab.com. And okay, that ranks... That? Sorry? Oh, sorry. I was, I was just asking what that was. Oh, yeah. So basically, that allows us to rank high-profile Twitter users according to the ratio of likes that their posts get from one party to the other. So people who appeal to both parties get higher on our leaderboard. And these are people like politicians, journalists, activists, and so on. So it allows people to identify those people in the middle um, and perhaps follow them or engage with them. But we also want to make that habitual. So if you want to turn up the volume of moderates in your feed, you can also follow bots that we created that, that every three hours retweet a message from one of these people high up on our bipartisanship leaderboard. And the goal here is to try to, again, kind of change the way that, in this case, Twitter works um, so that you don't, you know, you're not allowing the algorithm to boost those polarizing figures on your side. You're kind of creating a counterweight with these bots that will boost people in the middle. So, you know, those are the types of ways I think we also need more people to, especially more moderates, to engage in more productive conversations. The book also offers some uh, some tips about how, how we might do that. But those are the kind of main ideas I would I would give people um, right now. This is things we can do, you know, tomorrow. Excellent. Okay. Um, listen, Chris, I can't let you go before uh, you tell me where were I to come to Duke, North Carolina, not Texas, um, to to either visit you as I ideally would in these circumstances to 
uh, sit down and, and share a meal with you at your favorite place to eat and drink, where would that be? And where would you recommend people who travel to the U.S.? Bearing in mind that people who travel as tourists to the U.S. tend to either go to either one of the two coasts, east and west. They really must travel more through the, the country because the little I know of the, the Midwest, that being Kansas City, the food is just fantastic. Uh, and indeed, you know, Southern food is the heart of American cuisine. So where sure. would you- yeah, I would I would, you know, definitely say North Carolina is an interesting place to visit because, you know, you really see more of the country. Many you know, Europeans tend to come to you know, New York, L.A., um, but you really don't get a sense of America if you go to those places. Those places are much more mm. like a European city than America. And, you know, mm. many people might, might not want to see the rest of America. But, um, you know, it, it, it really helps people, I think, understand, um, you know, some of the uh, traditions of the U.S., you know, in, in North Carolina, we are a purple state, meaning we're a kind of half Republican, half Democrat. We have some interesting cuisine. Um, you know, barbecue is very prominent down here. So that means like uh, smoked pork. Uh, and I think most people would point you to one of, um, you know, uh, this area called the Research Triangles, many great uh, barbecue restaurants. I'm actually going to throw you a wrench, though, and endorse a pizza place, Pizzeria Mercado, which is a stunning Napolitana pizza um, right in the middle of North Carolina. I don't know how they do it, but they do. Uh, real Napolitana pizza. Excellent. Okay. So there are some restaurant recommendations for any of you who ever uh, travel to the U.S. and want to stop through uh, North Carolina. But I uh, heartily recommend, again, that you buy Breaking the Social Media Prism. You can buy it from all good online and bricks and mortar bookstores. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for uh, joining me in this conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I look forward to uh, following your research going forward. And I wish you all the best uh, in your discoveries and uh, your, your fixes for this problem that, as you say, we need a fix for today, not tomorrow. So thanks again. Thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure. It's, uh, it's really been an honor and a pleasure to join you. Um, and I hope we do it again soon. Take care. Take care.